chapter 3 today, the famous story of Rack Shack and Benny, for any VeggieTale fans out there. Um, but as you're turning to Daniel chapter 3, make sure this is working. Yes, all right, as you're turning to Daniel chapter 3, I want to tell you um, a story of when, well, actually, first it was kind of interesting this week as I was pre- preparing to teach on the fiery furnace, um, the breaker at our house went out, and meant, which meant that the AC did not work, and so it was rather toasty in our house as I was preparing for the preaching on the fiery furnace, so that's my attempt at a dad joke, um, but... When I was about 15, I think it was the summer I was 15, um, I grew up in a baseball family. For many you know, my dad was a longtime college baseball coach. <clears throat> I played baseball, and so oftentimes in the summer, I would go to um, high school baseball camps. And this particular summer, I went to one in a neighboring state at a SEC, SEC program, very successful SEC program. And uh, I, uh, fun story, if you follow Major League Baseball at all, I got to face a guy that would go on and play in the majors, a guy by the name of David Robertson, who was a great pitcher for the New York Yankees for several years. And uh, I faced him one time. I saw three pitches, strike one, strike two, strike three. I went and sat down. So that was that. But really the reason why I'm telling this story is because um, it was a, a really disorienting environment for me to be in. You know, I grew up in a very conservative Christian home, homeschooled um, here at Fullness. And this environment at this particular high school baseball camp was anything not, not like that. Um, very, pretty much everybody there was, had, just was spewing vulgar, profane language. Um, the way they were talking about the girls on the college campus was not uplifting. And I just felt totally like... A fish out of water, like I was the strange one. I was not known. Nobody knew who I was at this particular place. I was nobody. No one shared my values, my belief system. And I tell you that story because that is in a extremely miniature version, one week version of what it feels like a little bit to be an exile, to be a stranger in a strange land. And we're the series that we're working through in Daniel is called um, Kings and Exiles. And so we're focusing on what is the experience of the exiles in Babylon and how does that relate, how does that connect to us as we walk as exiles in what I think is really a modern-day Babylon in, in the West, in our, in our secular society. And so and i got to be honest, you know, preaching on this particular story, which everyone probably knows, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, you know, who here wants to suffer for Jesus? That's not really on my bucket list. And I'll confess, I don't even feel quite adequate to preach this, this passage because I don't consider myself a very brave person. I get scared of wasps, um, to be quite honest. And I get, I'm scared of heights. I'm not a particularly courageous person when I think of myself. But I think that's actually kind of the point, is this passage is not written to superheroes. This is written to everyday, ordinary followers of God who find themselves as exiles in Babylon. And it is written 
to comfort them, to encourage them in their time of exile, and also, I think, to present an example to them of what does a faithful exile look like in Babylon. And there's going to be three that we look at today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we're going to read this story. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 18 of Daniel chapter 3, which is right up until the point of where they're about to be thrown into the furnace. Next week, Gabriel is going to pick it up, preach on the second half. But we actually thought as we were putting this series together that it would be powerful to look at it really more from their perspective. Because we know the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story. So we're going to look at just leading up till the, the deliverance from the fiery furnace today. And Gabriel will pick it up next week on the second part. So um, we're going to read these verses. It's kind of a longer passage. So in order to, to keep you from checking out, um, I want us to, to pay attention to a few key words and phrases as we read this passage together. It's always very helpful, I have found over the years, that when I'm, I'm studying and looking at a passage of Scripture, to look for words and phrases that are repetitive. They get repeated again because they're probably going to give you a pretty good idea of what the passage is about. And so there's three in particular that I want you to pay attention to. But you'll notice other repetitive phrases. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. But the word king, pay attention to that. That's going to appear a lot. The phrase, the statue or golden image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. That phrase is going to appear. And then the phrase, fall down and worship. So here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. So very bizarre looking, very tall, very skinny. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Are you starting to see the repetition? And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music should fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? 
O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So I have two points that I want to pull from this. The first is this, the pressure of politically induced idolatry. So if, if, I don't know if you were counting some of these phrases, um, but I'm sure you noticed the repetition of the different phrases. The count that I got was the word king is mentioned 20 times in this 18 verses here, always referring to Nebuchadnezzar. So very much stressing his political power and authority. The phrase, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up, appears nine times. The phrase, fall down and worship, appears six times. And so very much what we're seeing is the context here is you have a very powerful political ruler who is commanding all those under his authority, under his command, which is apparently pretty wide, to bow down and worship the gods of his choosing. And so there's this pressure that is on the people to conform, to bow down. And there's a few different kinds of pressure, and I'm going to mention four of them. I'm going to move really quickly through the first three and then dwell for just a minute on the fourth one. You had the pressure of ceremony. Did you notice the repetition of all the instruments that were mentioned? I don't know if I, even, if I pronounced all of them correctly, but um, this is not a private thing. This is a very public and a very pagan ceremony. These were instruments that would not have been used in the Israeli temple back in, back in Israel. So it was a very public and pagan ceremony. The pressure of the majority. You, you notice the repetition of all the different people who were coming, all the officials who were coming, and they were bowing down. And it doesn't say it here, but I would imagine that there were probably other Jewish exiles who were also present, and they were probably also bowing down. So you had the majority. And then, obviously, the pressure of suffering, of physical suffering and ultimately death, the, the fiery furnace itself. But I want to suggest that there's another pressure that is also going on here. And I'm going to, this is the, the part that I'm, I'm really praying that I can communicate and articulate this clearly, because it's not quite as obvious at first glance. But it is this, it's the pressure of your worldview being challenged. The pressure of your worldview, your story being challenged. N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, and he has a helpful way that he defines a worldview. Um, he says, really, it's four things that is included in our, our worldview. And everyone has a worldview, by the way, whether you realize it or not. Um, first of all, it, you have, it contains a story, a story through which you view the world, a story that you tell yourself about the big questions of life, who, if there is a God, um, history. We, we are creatures of story. We cannot get away from, from, being, from telling a story. If, you, if somebody asks you, tell me about yourself, 
you're going to start telling a story. And so that is part of your worldview, is the story through which you view, see the world. Your worldview is going to contain answers to the, the big questions in life, questions like, who are we or who am I? So your identity is very much tied up in your worldview. It's going to contain cultural symbols that you're going to um, kind of cling to, that, that symbolize your worldview. I'm going to give an example of all these here in just a second. And then it's a view of how do we live if this story is true, if these questions, the answers to these questions in my worldview are true, these symbols are true, how then shall I live, as Francis Schaeffer said, in light of this worldview. So to an Israelite, an Old Testament um, member of, of the, the people of God, um, their worldview would look a little bit like this. The story that they told was the story of, of a God named Yahweh who came and rescued a people out of slavery in Egypt for himself so that he would be their God and they would be his people. And he entered into covenant with them. That was the story of the world. He was the, the creator, the gardener of the world. And what was wrong with the world? Well, people had rebelled against him. What were some of the answers to the big questions? Who are we? Well, we are the people of God. We are in covenant with him. What were some of the cultural symbols? Well, probably the most recognizable one would have been the temple, um, also the, the Torah. How did they live in the world? They were people of the Torah. They were people who followed the commandments of, of this God. But I would suggest also that one of the cultural symbols that they clung to, and I did not know this until I started kind of studying and researching for this message, but it was the image the cultural symbol of a furnace. And you're probably looking like, what? Um, I did not know this either. But did you know that in three places in the Old Testament, three places at least that I know of, when, they, when the people of Israel would tell the story of God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt, the image, the cultural symbol that they would use was that of an iron furnace. So I have one uh, passage up here, Deuteronomy 4.20, but it also is in Kings, it's in Jeremiah, so it's kind of all throughout the Old Testament. And so can't you just picture that as the, the Israeli people, as they're passing on the story, passing on the worldview generation to generation, that they would say, remember kids, how our God rescued his people out of the iron furnace to make them his people. And that was just part of how they told the story. So, I don't think it's an accident that what is, what is the, what are they being threatened with here? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here as exiles in Babylon, what are they being threatened with? The image of a furnace, but it's not the same kind as what they're used to. Instead of being taken out of a furnace, they're in danger of being thrown into a furnace. And so it's almost like it's almost like their worldview, the story that they've told all their lives, that they've marked their identity by, is being directly challenged. It's like, is this actually true? Because it feels like we're living the anti-story, the anti-narrative right now. It's like the story is going backwards. Instead of being delivered out of the furnace, I'm about to be thrown into the furnace. And then the challenge is put before them, who is the God who can deliver you out of this furnace? Is the worldview, is the story that you cling to, that you mark your identity by? Is it true? And I think we can all relate to this. I think we're actually seeing this today in our secularized Western society is 
our worldview, the story that we've told is being challenged. That's the experience of the exile. And now don't hear me what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about just a kind of a Western cultural version of Christianity. Sometimes there are aspects of that that needs to be challenged, and that's sometimes a good thing. I'm talking about the story of God sending his son to earth, living the life that we could not live, dying a death for sins to reconcile us back to God, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, who will one day return physically to the earth to make all things new again. The story of the gospel. That's the story that we pass on that marks us. That's, our, that's how we define ourselves. And we feel that story being challenged as exiles. That's, that's what it feels like to be challenged with a fiery furnace. It could be more corporate. It could be something in your life going on. It's like, this feels like a furnace, and I'm not sure if this story that I've told all my life is really true. That's the experience of the exile. And the question is put to them, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And it's in times like this that I think it can be very helpful to know what is the truth about these gods that I'm being told to bow down to, that I'm being told to worship for the sake of abandoning my God and my story and my worldview. And so I want to just take a minute here and look at Isaiah 46, a few verses really from Isaiah 46. I love, I was reading it the last couple of weeks. Isaiah 46 is an awesome chapter. I highly recommend you go home and read all of Isaiah 46. Um, just going to look at a, like four verses here. But it's basically, it's a chapter that is critiquing, deconstructing the gods of Babylon. And it's contrasting them with the one true God, Yahweh. But it's, there's a fascinating contrast that I want you to see. So Isaiah 46, starting in verse 1. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. By the way, those are Babylonian gods. In fact, those are some of the Babylonian gods who these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are named after. They're Babylon names. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. This is Yahweh speaking. All the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear I will carry and will save. Here's what I want you to notice. The gods of Babylon, the gods, the pagan gods, the false idols, they are really statues that have to be carried. They have to be propped up and carried. The one true God is the God who carries his people. And so the question that I think is put really before everyone in Babylon, but also to the exiles, is this. Do you have to prop up and carry your gods? Or does your God carry you? Do you serve gods who you have to prop up and you have to carry? Or do you serve a God who carries his people? Doesn't mean he's not gonna let them go into the, into the furnace, but he's the God who carries them. And I think what we see when we look around our society is we see a society that is full of gods that have to be actually propped up and carried. 
And I'm not really going to get into that much because I think Gabriel is going to press into some of those false idols next week. But here's the thing. When you're serving gods that you actually have to prop up and you have to carry them, is it's exhausting. And what do we see when we look around? We see a people who are anxiety-ridden, depressed, fearful, angry, exhausted because they're carrying gods instead of being carried by their God. So how about us? How about me? How about you? Are you serving gods that you have to carry, or are you serving the God who, who carries you? So we've looked at the, the, politi- the pressure of politically induced idolatry and, and the pressure of what it feels like to be in exile, but that's not the whole story. What, do we, what does it look like to be the faithful exile in Babylon? What should we be in light of this passage? So the second point is this, the quiet defiance of the faithful exiles. The quiet defiance of the faithful exiles. But I want to, before we go on to what this passage is saying we should be like, I think we need to be careful and say what this passage is not saying, what it's, what it's not teaching. Um, you know, it, it, you hear throughout Scripture, in the New Testament especially, the phrases like, um, submit to the governing authorities, honor the emperor, pray for those in authority. And it's important to see that those are not in contradiction with Daniel 3. They're not contradicting each other. But Daniel 3, this story, is an example of what we would call good civic disobedience. That there are times when a faithful follower of God actually says the right thing to do is to disobey. And you need to be clear, too, this is not... Um, this is, this is a direct disobedience of God that they're being asked to do. Okay, this is not like something that different followers of God could take differently depending on their conscience. Um, like, you know, Paul saying, well, if you feel free to do this, you do it, but don't, just don't make someone else stumble. Um, so you can't, don't be saying like, well, I don't pay my taxes. Why don't you pay your taxes? Well, I'm, I'm being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm, I'm standing up to the man. No, that's not what this is teaching. There is, this is a direct contradiction of really commandment number one. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. You shall have no other gods before me. That's, that is what they're being asked to do. So, but this is what the passage is not teaching. This is not teaching us to hate and reject all governments. Okay, notice that throughout this whole story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're never obnoxious or disrespectful to Nebuchadnezzar. They're never like, I'm going to get on a talk show and I'm just going to air my grievances about Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to write a blog. Um, They're very respectful of him actually the whole way through. And it also is not teaching to be unwilling to work with or for pagan rulers because literally they are working for Nebuchadnezzar. They've been assigned a place of authority in his administration over the provinces of Babylon. So if that's what it's not saying, what is it saying? What should we be? What does it look like to be a faithful exile? Well, the three things at least that I, I think we see is we see that they, there is a quiet defiance to them. And you may think, well, that is a strange two words to put together. 
quiet and defiance. But I think we know that because apparently Nebuchadnezzar didn't even realize that they weren't bowing. He actually had to be told by these other advisors, like, hey, you know, there's these people that they're not on your program. They're not with you. It's a quiet defiance. It's not a loud, like, we're going to stick it to the man. It's just quietly they are, they are defying his command. But it's not a cowardice at all. It is courage under control. It is courage under control. If you notice, the, there's a great contrast here in this story between how Nebuchadnezzar acts and his demeanor and how the three faithful exiles act. Nebuchadnezzar wants attention drawn to himself, builds a big idol, commands everyone to bow down to it. The idol may be representing him directly, it may not, um, but he wants focus on him. They are quietly just standing by their convictions. Nebuchadnezzar says he flies into a rage and fury when he learns that someone is dare going to go against him and dare defy him. Meanwhile, these three guys, they're totally calm under the, the whole story. We see them very much calm. They're the ones who are actually in control. Nebuchadnezzar is really the one who's flying out of control. Nebuchadnezzar is aggressive. He puts forth this question, who is the God who can deliver you out of my hands? They basically don't even really engage him in his question. They're like, you know, we're, we're not going to argue with you on this, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to answer you in this manner, but we're not going to bow. And then third, ultimately, their confidence is in God. Their confidence is in God. But notice, their confidence is in God, and it is not based on what God is going to do for them. Right? Nebuchadnezzar is basically saying, well, you know, if there's a God that you serve that is worthy, he's got to be a God who can deliver you. He puts forth that challenge to them. And isn't that kind of like what sometimes happens with Christians today? You know, if somebody will come up and they might challenge a Christian and say, well, if the God that you worship, that you say is real, is really real, and who he says, who you say that he is, you know, why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he do that for you? Why doesn't he show his power in this way? And the response of the three faithful exiles, and I think our response too, can be, of course he's strong enough to do this. Of course he's powerful enough to deliver. But I don't serve and follow him because of what he can do for me. I serve him because he's worthy, because he's God. He's the only one found worthy, as we, as we sang earlier. And you know, this, is, this is not really a, a Father's Day sermon per se, but dads, isn't this the kind of men that we want to be? Isn't this the kind of men that we want our kids to look to when they see us? That we are willing to walk in quiet defiance when we're asked to bow to the idols of the land, whether it be culture, whether it be political rules, whatever. Dads, isn't this, don't we want to be men who are, have courage under control and men who have confidence in God? And by the way, this does not mean being a big macho William Wallace guy who just goes up and wants to fight everybody you see. That may not be your personality. That's not my personality. That was not their personality. This is not a, a, um, a personality thing. This is a character thing. 
This is a conviction thing. And you can be, we can be these kind of dads when our confidence is in the Lord. And um, if I can just tell a quick story about my dad. Um, on Father's Day, I'm going to get a little emotional, but just because I know he's watching. Um, you know, my dad, a longtime college baseball coach, coached for many years um, in Division I college baseball, high level of, of coaching. And uh, in college baseball, there's actually a whole lot of deception that goes on. Um, may not realize that, but there is a ton of lying, a ton of cheating that happens. There's lying that goes on with the recruits. There's, um, you know, backhanded uh, financial stuff, you know, benefits that are being paid to, to recruits. There's, um, there's steroids that are, are done. Um, just believe me, it, it happens. And he knew about it, that it, that it happened. And, um, but he always, always said, I'm not going to take part of that. My teams are not going to take part of that. My coaching staff is not going to do that. He knew it was happening. And would that have led to more success and victories on the field? I don't know if, if he had done it, maybe. But he wasn't willing to bow to that idol of, of success on the field. And he said, we're not going to do that. And that's one of the things that, I mean, I've moved out long. I mean, years have now gone by. But I still remember that. Most people probably didn't even know that, that that was happening, of what he wasn't doing. But I knew, I saw, and I remember that. That stayed with me. That's part of the legacy that he's left for me as, as my father. I'm going to just go, I'm wrapping up here, but I'm just going to go here to the New Testament for just a second. I think this is a, a beautiful parallel passage to, to, this, to Daniel 3, and it's in um, the, the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter has become one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. I think part of the reason is because Peter, when he's writing to Christians, he also uses the language of exile. He calls them the, the exiles, the sojourners, the ones who don't belong. They're living under, not under Babylon, but they're living under Rome, which is really another version of Babylon. Babylon and Rome take different appearances all throughout history. But he says this in 1 Peter 4. 12 through 14, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Interesting choice of words, I think, too, by the way. You think he had Daniel 3, the fiery furnace, in mind? It's possible. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the faithful exile is not surprised when he's put before the furnace. He doesn't have to think, well, does this mean that the story that I've clung to all my life is not true? Does this mean that the God that I serve is unable to deliver me? No, this is actually part of the story. This is part of the path as an exile that I get to walk because I follow an exiled king and he suffered and so I get to follow him in example and suffer. I don't suffer as punishment for my sin because he took care of that. I suffer as privilege really is what Peter is saying 
This is not a sign of dishonor, even though the world would see it as dishonor. This is a sign that I am blessed, that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon me. I'll be honest, I have trouble with this. I don't know if my heart really believes this all the time. But I'm praying that the Holy Spirit helps me to believe it and that he helps us to believe it. Polycarp, I'm going to end with this. Polycarp was a bishop of the first and second century. He was born in 69 AD. He knew the apostle John and ministered as a leader, kind of second generation after the apostles. So after all those guys had had gone to be with the Lord, he was one of the leaders of the church. And he was a, a leader in the church of Smyrna, which if that sounds familiar, that's one of the letters that, of Revelation where Jesus is writing to the church, the church at Smyrna. Well, he was one of the leaders there. And he was operating under Roman rule. And by the time he was an old man, um, Rome was not taken very kindly to Christians and those who were of the Christian faith. And they were starting to round them up and bring them before the authorities. And they were basically telling them, you have to say, Lord Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And you have to repent of, renounce your Christianity. And the way that they worded that was they said, you need to say, away with the atheists. See, in those days, actually, Christians were called atheists. Now, that may sound really strange. Here's why. Because the gods of of Rome and Greece were gods that you could see. They were, you know, idols. The Christians didn't bow down to them. They worshiped a God that nobody could see. And so to the Roman, to the Greek mind, they were called atheists. And so Polycarp is brought to the authorities, and he's actually put forward to, the challenge put forward to him is he's got to say, Lord Caesar, away with the atheists. And if he didn't, he would be burned at the stake. He would be thrown into a fiery furnace. And he's 86 years old by now. He's been serving the Lord faithfully for a long time. And I just, as I was thinking about this, I thought, how easy would it have been for him to say, you know, I've been faithful to the Lord for a long time. I'm just, I'm just going to say what they, they want me to say and move on. But he didn't say that. And his response is, to me, probably one of my favorite quotes, favorite lines, most inspirational lines throughout church history. <laughs> he says this. 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they throw him up against the the stake. They burn him, and he isn't delivered. He actually does burn to death. But then he gets called. They call him the destroyer of the gods. They call Polycarp the destroyer of the gods, which I think is beautifully ironic that in being unwilling to bow before those gods, he conquers them. He becomes known as the destroyer of the gods. And that's, that's what we do. That's the example that's, that's put forward to us. And so here's how I want us to end today. Um, remember how I talked about how part of what was going on, part of the pressure for these three exiles is their worldview was being challenged, right? The story that they had told all their lives, the symbol of that, the symbol of the furnace was being thrown in their face and being directly questioned. And what I want us to do 
as, as we end is I'm going to ask um, TV, Elder TV, to come back up. And uh, do we have a mic uh, that, he can, that he can use? Um, I thought it would be appropriate for us as the people of God here at Fullness to confess again our story. To confess the story that has been faithfully passed down through generations. The story that marks us. The story that we are identified by. So TV, if you would come up and lead us as we confess together in the Apostles' Creed. So stand up, please. Thank you, Scott. Glory. We're going to declare this, and we're going to declare it with power. We're going to declare it like we believe it. Then we're going to go home, and we're going to read Isaiah 46 and 1 Peter. Together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Amen. This is our story. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. Um, before I speak the benediction to dismiss, uh, you may be here today and you feel like you're in someone of a 